Good morning, brothers and sisters. Can everybody hear okay? Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 4. It's the allotted portion of Scripture that we have to cover this morning. Acts chapter 4. It is a pretty lengthy chapter, and we will do our best to cover as much of it as we can. Acts chapter 4, I'm reading from the King James. The Word of God would read, And they spake unto the people, and the priests, and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about five thousand. And it came to pass on the morrow that the rulers, the elders, and the scribes, and Ananias, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, as many were of kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or what by name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if ye this day be examined, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to this impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, Even by him doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which became the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, They marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could could nothing against it, say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do with this man? For indeed, it is notable miracle hath been hath, hath been done by them is manifested them that dwell in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it, but that it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto, unto you more than God, Judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. And the man was above, above 40 years old on which the miracle of healing was showed. And being let go, they went unto their own company and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. And they went 
And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by thy mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of earth stood up against and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And the truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both, Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold the threatenings and grant thy servants that with all boldness they may speak the word, stretching forth thine hand to heal and that the signs and wonders be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believe of one heart, of one soul, neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed, possessed, was his own, but that they all had things common. With a great power gave the apostle witnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the great grace was upon them all. Neither was any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands, houses, sold them, and, and brought prices of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he hath as he had need. And Joseph, by whom the apostles surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and, a, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought it the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And that concludes the chapter. Let's look to the Lord for guidance. Our gracious Lord and our Father, we're so thankful to be here this morning to remember thy son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We would ask that he would be revealed to us in this portion of scripture, that he would get the glory and honor this morning. We would ask for uh, minds of understanding, open up our hearts that we might take in thy word, that it might have an effect in our very lives this very morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So this chapter, it's, it's a... a we, we, we should call this chapter, it's almost a turning point in church history. This is, we're in the very early chapters of the book of Acts, where the church was founded, essentially, uh, with the events that have led up to this chapter. Uh, it's very important that we know exactly what occurred in the manner that the apostles responded and, and the way that they defended the gospel. Um, and the chapter begins with the word and, right? So this is continuing uh, a story that happened in the previous chapter, which our brother Andrew covered last week, in which Peter and John went together to the temple. There was a lame man laying there, and we, we would sing the, the Sunday school song, Peter and John went to pray, right? It's a beautiful song. In the name of Jesus Christ, right? In the name of Jesus Christ. And it's it's... Um, very encouraging to me that a lot of the themes that were covered this morning are going to be the very same themes that we're going to repeat 
in this lesson. So this, this event, this healing of this lame man had such a powerful effect. And it, it caused such an effect to the people. We're going to see in, in verse 4 that the, the people that were added to the church just by the sermon given in the second half of chapter 3 was 5,000, not total. If you read that verse carefully, it's 5,000 men. So now you could conservatively say that there's women and children in the presence. Maybe it's a one-to-one ratio. So that would be 15,000 roughly. And that's just an, an estimate. And you could compare, and again, I, I love numbers. You could compare the numbers versus Pentecost where it specifically said there was a total of 3,000. So this is a powerful message. The people's hearts were moved. Countless people were being added to the church from the events that occurred. And not just the events that occurred, but the message that Peter and John boldly gave to the people as they were gathered and they were amazed. Because it was an amazing miracle as it was covered. This was not a young child that was in a wheelchair. This was a man that was above 40. It was this, it's described in this chapter. And he not only was able to to fix whatever condition he had, but he was able to walk. Now, you could consider some of the people that, you know, you're familiar with, some people that, that you've known that might have gotten into an accident, and now they're, it's, it's a horrible, horrible tragedy, but now they're, they're confined to a wheelchair. Eventually, their legs get atrophy, they get skinny, it becomes skin and bones because the muscles are not used. Imagine a man from, from birth, being lame at his feet, what his legs must have looked like. So the miracle was not just that he was able to walk, but that his, his body was regenerated. And everybody knew who he was. Everybody was a witness to this man, the condition that he was before, to the condition now that he is in. Where it was not that he was just limping, trying to get his, his strength and moving. And wow, that's such a miracle. When, with, with the medical breakthroughs of technology we have, that somebody has a spinal cord injury, and through a lot of therapy, they're able to stand up and walk with assistance and eventually kind of regain some of that movement. It's, it's mind-blowing, the mind and the intelligence that God has given humans to have the medical capacity to help injured people recover to that extent. But this recovery was not so. There was no two years of rec- recovery and that he would be able to move at, at 20% from his previous capacity. No, this is a hundred percent recovery. It was instantly in his response. He was leaping. He was jumping and he was praising God. Imagine that somebody has never done this before. He was leaping. So, and, and think about the, the, um, how it is. I mean, I see little Benji over there. I see a lot of little babies. They're, they're slowly learning to walk. This is a man that's never walked. He's leaping. I mean, it's, it's the, the miracle had such an impact that it caught the eyes of the religious leaders. And this, the, the Sadducees and the, the captain of the temple, it says in, in verse 1, it, it caught up their attention. And it caught their attention because not because, wow, praise the Lord, this great work was done. But no, it was because of the name, the name that was brought up. And so they, they would go and they would capture them. Now, this is... Like I said, this is an important turn in, in, in the history of the church. Before uh, we got to this, this point, a lot, a lot of things occurred between the, the, the ends of the, the gospel, towards the disciples coming together, they mean another apostle, versus Christ, uh, also Christ appearing to them, 
I mean, 500 people witness, and then God, Christ would give them the great commission, and then he would be taken up, ascended to heaven. Then they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the, the uh, day of Pentecost occurred. People received the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on, a lot going on, and it, it seems like it's not slowing down. And then here we get to almost the first roadblock in the sense that this is the first time in the church's history where there's going to be some opposition, some persecution between Judaism, in this case, and Christianity, between what's being taught by the apostles. This is the first spot where, right, there's there's nobody that was uh, injured or stoned or killed, but it's going to lead to that. And in the very next few chapters, we're going to see the first martyr, we're going to see Stephen. In chapter 12, you're going to see the first apostles killed in James. And and it's in a sense that God is preparing them for what's to come. And the way they respond, uh, they they pass with 10 marks out of 10. Um, So let's, let's get into that story. But being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Again, the the objection here was not that they healed the man, not the great work that they had done, but it was the name, the name, the name that holds power. What signifies, what's, what's the significance of that name? And they laid hands on them. I don't think they laid their hands on them to bless them in a sense, as we see in other portions of scripture. That means they apprehended them. They probably held them captive. And in my Bible, since it's King James, it says it was now eventide. We don't speak that way, but it was already dark. It was already late. So they kept them overnight. Um, and then there's that beautiful verse in, chapter, in, in verse 4, where it says, How be it, of them which heard the word and believed, the number of men was about 5,000. 5,000. Here we see the fruit of the labor that they put in. Here's the, the fruit of the message that went out, the power of the message, and specifically the power in the name of Jesus Christ, where 5,000 were added. And again, in comparison to chapter 2, where it was just 3,000. And this is this here, you're going to see the movement of, of the stories through the book of Acts. Um, these are our good divisions, right, of, of occurrence of events. And it would the the writer in this case is, is Luke. He he would put this 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 phrase of how many were added, and it would start essentially almost a new movement. And over here we're going to begin now the uh, the questioning of of the Sanhedrin towards the apostles. Now before we continue, just wanted to give a, a quick little outline just to, for us to keep in mind how this chapter breaks down. There's a few other few. Um, commentators that divided differently. This is the way I, I kind of liked it. Uh, so verses 1 through 4 is uh, prisoned. Peter and John were imprisoned. Verses 5 through 7, they were probed by the Sanhedrin. Verses 8 through 12, preaching of Christ. Verses 13 through 22, powerless accusers. Verses 23 through 30, power of the Holy Spirit. And that's my lame attempt of making everything a P. Well, there you go. Here's the, I wanted just to say that verses five through seven is the questioning of the apostles, but we just said probe, which we don't typically use, but it's a P. There you go. (laughs) Now, it's a different group of people that come to question 
the apostles, right? So before it's just the Sadducees and the, the captain of the temple. Now here comes the highest that could come, the 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 the, the who among who, right? Of of uh, of um, Israel. And it came to pass on the morrow that the rulers, the elders, and the scribe. And here we're going to be introduced not for the first time, but these are familiar names from the Gospels. And there came Ananias, the high priest, and Caiaphas, right? And then some of his Close kindred, it would say in verse 6. These are people that are hearing about Jesus Christ for the first time and they're going to familiarize themselves about who this person is and why they're pre... No, no, no. By all means, no. They're 100% familiar on who Jesus Christ is. For they dealt with him. They were the ones that moved the people and moved the Roman procurator to crucify Christ. They knew 100% of his miracles that he did, of his teachings, of how they would communicate back and forth with him to try to entrap him in his words, to find a way to condemn him. To, to, and, and what was the reason, right? And this is one of our, our major themes in this chapter, power. Power that they did not want to let go. If you recall in John chapter 11, when Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, it was, again, a, a, a powerful miracle that three days after this man had been dead, when, when the, the, the high priest came together and they, they counseled together, essentially the, the words that they would say, if we do nothing, the Romans will come and take our place away our place of power. They were allowed to maintain this place of power amongst the nation. And their main concern was to lose power, right? And they conferred amongst each other, right? And they say, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for his people, then the whole nation perish not. And these words, the words of Ananias, right? The high priest, not knowing what he was saying, not knowing what he was actually prophesying, but he was just concerned of, let's get this man out because he's going to take our place of power. Power, right? There's this theme of power. And we're going we're gonna to cover it even more. Or these were the same people that moved, right? The people. The people, the majority of the multitudes were with Christ. But when they came time to the, the, the crucifixion, to, to the, the trial of Christ, it, it's very clear from the, his, the historic event that happened and all the Gospels would agree that Pontius Pilate would declare him to be, I find no fault in him. He was trying to declare him to be innocent. And he didn't want the blood to be in his hands. He tried to set Christ free a few times. He would chastise him. He would scourge him, trying to see if he would appease the multitudes. And yet these very same high priests, they would move the people and they would blackmail Pontius Pilate in a sense, saying that if you... Don't crucify him. You are no friend of Caesar. And then it cut very close to the same to, to another ruler that loved his power. Now he was not he wasn't afraid of the people, but he was afraid of now it looks to me, it's gonna look as if I'm not I'm siding with some individual Jew instead of with the Roman Empire, and now my place in this empire is coming under scrutiny, and I could be removed. And he would give in. These are the very same people that get introduced to us in verses 5 through 7. The very same people that are questioning these apostles. They're no fools. 
They knew, they knew exactly what they were doing. They were not doing it blindly when they crucified Christ. And it, it was all because of them not wanting to relinquish power. In verse 7, this, you could say this is the theme of, of our passage, right? It says, by what power, by what name have ye done this, right? By what power, by what name, right? They're getting to the heart of the question. It's, again, it's not an objection to the miracle. For plainly, in a couple of verses later, they're going to admit it. They're going to confer amongst themselves, and it cannot be denied, it cannot be denied. But what they object to was the name, the name. How sad of a, a statement that is, right? Not, not that you're not denying the evidence that's presented before you, but you are denying the source of the evidence. They're perfectly fine and, and they can't deny it. They see this, this guy that they have testimony from a bunch of people that was lame at his feet and they can't deny the evidence but they want to deny the source of the evidence. And it still rings true today in, in Christianity, right? In the world, I, I understand there's, there's a lot of groups that want to pro- prosecute, persecute Christians, uh, nations, and certain religions. But overall, the majority of the world doesn't have a problem with Christianity. doesn't have a problem with the church. They, they appreciate that the, the Christians do a lot of wonderful charitable deeds that they're unselfish. They, they don't oppose to Christians gathering. Um, they don't oppose to, to the mission work that they do, right? They're, they're helping out impoverished nations. They don't mind any of those good works. But the minute the name Jesus Christ comes up, it's, it's an offense to them. And it's almost like, hey, you're a Christian. We, we could be friends, right? Me and you could be friends, but... Don't bring Jesus into the conversation. I don't need that in my life. And it, it almost becomes a, a, a barrier, a, a stumbling block, right? And, it, and it's, it's so true today. And, and, and here they would see the evidence, but they would, they would want to reject the source of, of the evidence, right? The, the one that performed this miracle. They, they don't want to believe it. And it's, it's a sad, sad testimony of where these people's hearts were. Right? The religious leaders, these were the rulers of Israel, where their hearts really were. It was not in, in the truth, not coming to the knowledge of truth, right? not in, in leading people to God, which was what, that was their, their whole, whole point of their position. Right, The position of the high priest had gotten so corrupt that it became more of tradition, rituals, and imposing uh, these things on the people of God that it would keep them away from the Creator and it would make them rich and it would make them powerful. And it became so corrupt that they would not want to let that go. So Peter, again, with it being... Now, now look, look in this theme of power, being filled with the Holy Ghost, right? This is saying Peter empowered himself and spoke boldly to them. No, no, it says specifically... Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost. There's the source. The source of power is important. And I want you to to know in in, in this study that we're doing in this chapter, where the power comes from. In the name of Jesus was one source. Here we see in the whole, being filled with the Holy Ghost, said to them, ye rulers of the people in Israel. And then he would go on to say, by the name of Jesus Christ. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
whom ye crucified, ye crucified, whom God raised even from the dead, even by whom doth this man stand here before you. And here, Peter is being empowered, intimidated. I mean, he, they were held captive. Now they're before people of authority. And instead of changing the tune of the story to kind of calm things down, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And does he change the message? Does he change the message that was given in chapter 3? The answer is simply no. In chapter 3, uh, and, and again, Andrew covered it last week, and in verse 12, it, it would say, um, when he's speaking, Peter is giving the message, now not to the Sanhedrin and the rulers of Israel, but to the people. It says, look ye earnestly unto us as though by our own power or our own holiness we have made this man walk. Like he's flatly just, here, let me clarify this. It's nothing that I'm doing. It's not my power, not my might, not my eloquence. It has nothing to do with me. And he would go and, and preach the gospel and again, give the source of the power in the name of Jesus Christ, as he would tell the layman. The gospel doesn't change, brothers and sisters. The gospel is the same and it's the same message that we give today. Christ crucified is the only way to save sinners. We here in, in, in our local gathering, we don't, we don't do things to make it more pleasant for people to come. We're not concerned about drawing a large crowd. Sadly, there's a lot of big gatherings of so-called churches where it's, it, it, it almost becomes more of a a motivational message to make you feel good. And then maybe they'll throw in a verse at the end. And the majority of it, it's maybe very lively music, maybe very appealing to the ears and to the eyes and have people playing beautiful instruments with, with wonderful voices, right? No, I'm not saying anything against Andrew. I think he does a wonderful job. But we're not paying him. And he's not the reason why we come. We come because of Jesus Christ. And, 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 and the message is the same. Here's, here's, oh, it's blocked. Jesus Christ, right? The same yesterday, today, forever. And directly from Hebrews chapter 13. He, ha, he doesn't change. Our message doesn't change. The gospel message doesn't change. The way people get saved, the way people come to Christ, to the knowledge of truth, it's the same, right? It's, it's not something that changes. And here Peter would demonstrate that. It doesn't matter who his audience is. And I'm not saying that the way that we present the gospel shouldn't be shouldn't change there, there could be some variation but the message is still the same jesus christ would speak to a samaritan woman in one way he would speak to nicodemus in the other way but the message was the same and it should be the same for us today when we look into scripture and the way we present the gospel to non-believers it should be the same message it's not of anything that we're adding to it that's going to save people it's the power is in in the blood of Christ. Now, it gets to a point where not only does Peter tell them that, he, he reminds them, oh, oh, by the way, this is, this is the one you rejected, the cornerstone. Now, the one you rejected has become the cornerstone, right? The very foundation of the church, which is now growing and is growing in numbers. And, then, and he's reminding them, oh, by the way, this is, this is Jesus Christ whom you rejected. The chief cornerstone. And then, just in case you didn't get the message, right? In verse 12, 
It's not, if you're, again, questioning by what name this power was done. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And, 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 to, and, and if you speak to, to people today, they're, they're uh, you know, the ones that believe there's something after death, right? How are we to be judged they, you know, you'll get multiple answers from doing good works, being good. Um, there was an interview um, that that I saw. This is a while back where Oprah was interviewing various religious leaders, right? And one of them was Christian. And, and at the end, she was trying to say, "Well, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what path we take, just as long as we are good people, right?" And no, no, that that's exactly the opposite. What Peter's saying. There's no other name. There's only one way to heaven, right? And that's through Jesus Christ, where there's one God and one mediator between man and God. Right? And then it would say then in verse 13. I'm getting ahead of myself. In verse 13, it would get to now their response to receiving essentially the same message, right? The message in chapter 3 resulted in five thousand men. And who knows how many men and women being saved. Now it gets to their response of the message. Now when they saw boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Right? There's that word boldness. The word boldness was discussed this morning. And, it, it, and, and the boldness that Peter and John receive, we're going to see again where the source of that boldness comes from. Was it of themselves, of being tough people? Was it because they were eloquent, educated men's of degree? Were they because they were so-called reverends or pastors or, or, or these self-given titles, right? No, it says that they were unlearned and ignorant. They recognized them, hey, these were the same dumb fishermen from before, those rascals. Where are they getting this power from? They're speaking differently. They're speaking with boldness, and they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant at one point. But look how beautiful, and these are beautiful words coming from those, those uh, high priests and those Sanhedrin, and they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. That they had been with Jesus. Now, Christian, that still holds true today. In order to serve God, in order to serve Christ, it has nothing to do with what seminary you went to. It has nothing to do with what uh, secular degree you obtain. It doesn't matter if you have a title of a doctor or of of some some high title, right? DD, no, or 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 whatnot. It doesn't matter. I'm I'm an, I'm an engineer. It doesn't matter if if you're an engineer, right? That stuff matters not when it comes to serving to Christ. And I'm, I'm and again, I'm not putting down. People that go to seminary or, or take Bible classes, that stuff is well and good. And it could be very beneficial. But if you look at this example of what makes an effective servant of God, is that they what? That they spend time with Jesus. That they spend time with Jesus. Is how, how simple of an answer that it, could that be? It's, it has nothing to do with the accolades. It has nothing to do with um, these human recognitions. To the point where they looked at them, saw their boldness, saw the way that they were speaking, and they, they would see that they spent time with Jesus. 
Knowing Jesus and spending time with him in his word and in prayer is what's needed of a servant of God. And let that be the highest, the highest uh, praise that could be given to a believer, right? Not so much of, of what they do, good works, or, but let that be uh, the testimony, right? That, that we should strive to be, that people could see that we spent time with Jesus. Let that be the highest praise to the believer. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, a very familiar verse would say, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, right? And it's, they're spending so much time with Christ that they're speaking like Christ, they're acting like Christ, and, and they could see that. These people that, again, from the Gospels, were very familiar with who Christ was, what his teachings were, what his, what his miracles that they did, that he did, and then they will look at these people. It looks like they spent time with Christ, knowing that they put him to death. Knowing that they put him to death. In verse 14 and 15, they, they confess amongst themselves that the evidence of the miracle was undeniable. Undeniable. When I, when I always hear of undeniable evidence, it makes me think of Pharaoh when, when Moses will come and say, let my people go, and he would say, who's your God? And God would graciously demonstrate who he was and provide evidence, and then his magicians will give some evidence. And they will get to, the, to a point where the evidence that God was giving was undeniable, where his own people would say, this is the finger of God. Undeniable evidence. We can't do this. This is the finger of God. And you would think that that would turn his heart. And here they are coming to this point amongst themselves. We can't deny it, right? He was standing there healed before them and they cannot deny it. And instead of turning to the living Savior, they would further threaten them and command them to keep, keep to themselves, to not preach in the name. In verse 16, it says that we cannot deny it. And, and so in verse 15, they would command them, right? And here is... Empty power. With, with, there's, there's no source behind it. In verse 15, they would command them. And in verse uh, 17, they would threaten them. In verse 18, again, they would command them again. And in verse 20, they would, 21, they would further threaten them. Empty threats from powerless people. Powerless hypocrites. Empty threats. And, and, and what, what would be, what it's, their point is, keep it, Hidden, keep it closed. There's a lot of people turning to Jesus Christ, and and they don't want that. They don't want to lose their power, and yet they would answer. Peter and John would answer, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than God, you judge, you judge. It's a very similar response as when there's further persecution, and I'm not. I don't want to go into other people's territory. In chapter five, where it says we ought to obey God rather than Man, it's true today. We thank God we live in a country that still we have our liberties here. And they respect the church to some extent through these recent events of this, this virus, right, that's come. A lot of, a lot of uh, local governors, mayors, right, and they, they pose their, their strict laws, right? We want to contain the virus. I'm not, and again, I'm not speaking against science and trying to contain viruses, but they would go on to elect essential businesses. 
what can stay open, right? And heaven forbid ever got to a part where it says churches were not considered an essential business. And through the grace of God, through technology, we're able to gather remotely. But imagine if, if they were to shut that down. No, you are not together. We need to take this stance. We ought not to obey God rather than man. We ought to obey God rather than man. And, and who knows, maybe in our lifetime it will come to it, to some point where they're going to want to shut down the local gatherings. And they're going to say, this is going to be illegal, which is very true to believers in North Korea and in China. They ought to obey God rather than man. Again, boldly Peter gives this message. Where does he get his power from, right? And then the response that, that, that the... Let me mention one thing regarding their response. When they, they were asked, they say that they had to testify, right? They, not only were they saying in the name of Jesus, but they were he's basically saying that in verse 20 says, For what we cannot speak, or, or I'm sorry, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Who gave him that commandment? Well, just a, a hint. It's in chapter 1. None other, if, if you have a red letter Bible, this is the one verse that's read here. It says, But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and all of Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Here's the Great Commission. They're obeying a straight command from their Savior. Before he ascends, he told them to do this. And they're testifying. They testified before the people. Now they're testifying before people that are prosecuting them, that are commanding them to not preach, threatening them, and that held them captive. And they're saying that we have to be witnesses. They're in obedience to the word of God. So must we, Christian. And then, we're, we're running really quickly out of time. Let me skip down to... To the prayer. I, I, I want to emphasize their response, right? So empty threats, they, they threaten them verbally, held them captive overnight, and now they, they let them go. They, they have no power, right? No power over, over the apostles. Now, usually when people have victory in today's society, they go and they gloat, look at me, I defeated whatever policy, if you're, you're a politician, or look at me, I beat this team. And they celebrate, they, they go out, they have parades. The response of, of the apostles was not to gloat and to say, ha, we, we showed those religious leaders who has the power. No, they go to their own company and they report what was said to them. And what do they do, right? Are they celebrating? They immediately lift their voice to God in one accord. Corporate prayer and praise. That's where they go. They don't go to say, look what I did. They go to the source, to the source that gave them this victory, and in one accord. And we do corporate prayer here, where one brother, even though it's just one brother that's praying, he's praying on behalf of the congregation. And we're all with him. And when he says, amen, we say, amen. Yes, yes, Lord, let it be, let it be. That's what amen means. And when you notice when brothers pray, they're not saying, Lord, I... Do this, Lord. Uh, I think that you're wonderful, Lord. 
I'm praying that you would uh, uh, do this wonderful work amongst us. It's not I, it's Lord, we, we, together, collectively. You're bringing the whole assembly before the presence of God. And that's the way that we should pray, just according to the example that's established here in the early church. And look, now I, I want to, before we, we close, and I'm sorry I'm going to go over a little bit, I want to look at the, the prayer. Because sometimes, just because of repetition and complacency, sometimes when we pray, it's almost like we come to the Lord, before the Lord, yes, I have to pray for my food, I'm going to pray before I go to bed, I'm just going to pray because it's an obligatory type of thing, because Scripture commands it. And maybe we come and it's more of a grocery list, Lord, here. This is what I need. Please, please, Lord. And then and sometimes it, it becomes repetitive. When I pray with my kids at night, it's, it, 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 we try to give thanks, right, for, to the Lord for what He has given us. Try to say something about Him. But it becomes, um, well, my children, when they were very young, they're afraid of nightmares. So one of the first things that they would pray for is, please give us good dreams and not nightmares, right? So it's, it's me, me, right? So we, we shouldn't come with that, with, with that, um, attitude of asking for things it's not a, a, a grocery list look how how they start their pray uh lord thou art god which thou hast made heaven earth and the sea and all that is in them right the the word lord that is in here and, and again i'm trying to not botch uh, some of this ancient greek is the the word that it's used for lord is despotos which means sovereign, ruler, master, somebody that commands authority, right? This is the title that they're approaching the Lord with. Lord, thou art God. You have power. You have control. And they're acknowledging his power. And then it would go on to say, thou hast made heaven and earth and the sea. As if in those three, three words, just describing his power, right? If you think about the heaven, we, we described this morning and when our brother read in Colossians that has created the principalities, powers, dominions, right? And it's not just the physical heavens that he created. In Genesis 1, he would say he made the stars also, almost as an afterthought. My kids are always, Papa, show me, show me a star, right? And we'll Google search, this is a star. Oh, show it to me and we'll show a comparison to earth. Wow. This is the size of the earth. That's the size of a star. And they've discovered stars that are so gigantic that you couldn't see the earth. It's just a, a small speck, not visible to the human eye. And, and God created all those things. But not just the physical universe. He created the spiritual heavens, right? Heavens didn't create themselves. Where, where the, the things described in Ezekiel, Zechariah, and, and, and Revelation, that the angels and the cherubim, the, the seraphim, where they dwell, God created all that. He created the heavens. He created the earth. I'm told that in this earth, currently there is between 7.6 and 7.8 billion human beings. God created that. Everything that walks upon the earth, all the, the, the hundreds of species that are still being discovered every year, God created that. That's the God that they're speaking to. The God that created the seas and everything that's under. The, the seas cover about three-fifths of the earth's surface. There's parts where we haven't even gone to, where we don't have the technology to explore. God created that. That's the God that they're praying to. Acknowledging His, His, His supremacy, how, how powerful He is. 
And then they, he would go on to quote Old Testament. It's very common that we quote scripture in our prayers, and we should, right? And he, here he would go on to quote Psalms chapter 2, by the word of, of thy servant David, right? A man after God's own heart. And the part of the, the psalm that he would quote is very interesting. The part that, that's quoted here, it goes, um, Why did heaven rage and the people imagine vain things? And the earth and the kings of the earth shook up and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. In Psalm chapter 2, it doesn't say his Christ. It says against his anointed which is what Christ says in the Greek, between the Greek and the Hebrew. He's quoting a word for word. And, and that's how he's approaching God. And, and he's quoting this scene of, of conflict, right? Very interesting, right? What they just experienced. And he would go on to quote this conflict that's happening. And the point of why he's quoting it, he would apply it to that day of what happened. Christian, we apply scripture that we read today. It wasn't applicable for yesterday. That portion wasn't applicable just for David's time. It was applicable where he would incorporate that passage of scripture. Look how he would read it. And in verse 27, as it goes, For the truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Those gentlemen did not live in the time of David. Those were their contemporary. Those were contemporary enemies of God. Powerful individuals. With the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Right? So he's, he's saying the kings of the earth. Now imagine, I just think about the power, just say for America. The power that a president has where he has nuclear weapons. He has armies with technology and these drones that, that take people out without them even noticing. I'm told that China has an army of a million. And, and even the small countries, they have their impressive armed forces. Now imagine the scene where the kings, the rulers of the earth, are gathered against God and His anointed. Right? And this is a scene that's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, you can read about it in Revelations when they're gathered against New Jerusalem. And God would wipe them out with one word. They're no match. How mighty and incredible and terrifying that power is, they are no match to God. And Peter signifying they are no match to God. Just as those rulers are not going to be no match to God, the rulers today, there are oppressors and our enemies. Herod, this, well, this Herod in particular, who his father was so powerful with one command, he killed all the children that were two years and younger. Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator that, that ruled essentially with an iron fist that would that would uh, do what he wanted for his own power and his own might. The Gentiles and the Jews. Tony Martin, uh, when he gives his testimony, he, he would say that when he was a young Catholic boy, he was raised with anti-Semitic uh, feelings right towards the Jews. And he would say, you killed Christ. You killed Jesus. Not knowing Jesus himself, it was the attitude that they had of being anti-Semitic. And I tell you that's diabolical. Right? We should pray for the nation of Israel. Now, I've seen the other extent where we're like, oh, we have to support them, support them, support them. The nation of, of Israel is, to, for the most part, they're secular and pagan. We need to pray for them, right? Uh, not support everything they do because they're not, they're not uh, honoring their Messiah at the moment. But this anti-Semitic 
uh, enmity that a lot of people have towards the Jews is hatred, it's diabolical, and the source of it is Satan. But, and, and the point of saying that it's not that it was just the Jews that were present that condemned Christ. It was Gentiles. Peter here is saying, hey, it's not just, just this group of people, but it's also the Gentiles. They're both at fault. When I was a, a young man in camp, we used to sing this song, Who Killed Jesus, right? And, and it would go on through, was it the Roman soldiers? Was it this person? Was it that person? At the end, the conclusion is, it was my sin. It was my guilt that put Jesus to the cross. It was me, right? And it's not that we're excluded. And then he would go on to make that point in verse 28. For what, for, to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determine before to be done. Um, Brother Malcolm always quotes this, this phrase, through weakness and defeat, he wore the victor's crown or the reading crown. He trod his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. The hymn writer would say, through weakness he over hell prevailed. Through death he won the day. This is Jesus Christ. This is the plan of God. It was a sovereign plan. And, and those people that were responsible and they put Christ to the cross, it might have crossed their minds, aha, we shut him up. We won. We have victory over him. At the end of the day, it was the counsel of God that was determined beforehand that was being carried out. Not to say that those people are not going to be accountable. For Peter himself would preach. He would tell them to repent. He said, you crucified him. What should we do? Repent. Everybody was accountable. Everybody had free will. And those rulers themselves, if they did not bend the knee, if they did not come to Christ, they will be held accountable. Nonetheless, God in his sovereignty would use them to carry out his will through his wisdom. <clears throat> the, the will of God was carried out. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it speaks a little bit about the wisdom of God. Chapter 2, verse 12, it would say, sorry, I don't have this one memorized. Chapter 2, verse 8, I'm sorry. Which none of the princes, speaking about the wisdom of God, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And here, here's that mystery, right? So they, they didn't know. They, perhaps they did in ignorance, right? But they would not have crucified had they known the wisdom of God. And it's up to them to, to come and, and repent. So who killed Jesus, right? Many, many people had their hands in that play. Ultimately, it was, it was the, the will of God that... Uh, carried these events to to be brought forth. And in, in crucifying him, uh, God would make him the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. In him, all our iniquities were laid. He was as that sheep in, described in, in the book of Isaiah 53 that would be presented as the ultimate plan to redeem humanity. And in, in finishing... so. He addresses uh, God for his titles. He, he says what he has done, created. He, he, he quotes scripture of uh, a scene of oppression. He would go on to apply to, to their situation. And then he finally gets to a part where he's going to ask for something in verse 29. And now, Lord, behold their threatening and grant thy servants with all boldness that we may speak thy word and by stretching forth thy hand to heal and that the signs and wonders may be done by thy name of thy holy child jesus it's not 
God, give me because I want this. No, 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 no. It's God, enable us to do thy work. Give us boldness. This is the same Peter that lived with, that, that witnessed all of Christ's ministry, that witnessed miracles, that he himself did miracles, that witnessed the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. The same Peter that was in the day of Pentecost when, when he saw the, the Holy Spirit come upon. And yet he's still praying for boldness. Imagine that you would think, oh no, Peter, you, you have it. You have it down packed by now. Which demonstrates where he leans on, where his source of power comes from. Who sustains the believer? It is God through prayer, through us, us relying solely on him. The minute that he would rely on himself, you think of, of, of when he would step down to see Christ in the water and he would take one step. The minute he takes his look from Christ, he would sink the minute that he stops relying on the Lord, he would sink. Even the godly Peter, an apostle. Now how, how does that not apply to us today? We need to rely on the Lord to sustain us, to move us, to, to work in us. It's not in, in ourselves. And what he would ask for, he would ask for, for things that would carry on his work, for his will, for his glory. And I love verse 31. And when they had prayed... The place was shaken. They were assembled together and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. Again, that source of power. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. And they all spake the word of God with boldness. Imagine that. Immediately answered prayer. How beautiful is that? Are we praying like that believer? Are we praying for God's will to be carried? Are we uh, relying on the Lord to sustain us in our everyday? We're well, well, out of time. So we're not. I'm not going to cover verses 32 through 37. Uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Lord and our Father, we're so thankful for Thy Word. We're thankful for these early examples of of believers and Thy apostles. How they would function. How they would boldly stand to opposition. How they would boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. How it is the same message that we proclaim this morning, Father. We ask that His name would get the glory and honor. In Your Son's name, we pray. Amen.